Well, I hope you've got um, sight of one of the, the sheets, Alpha Week 3, and uh, headed, Why Did Jesus Die? Why Did Jesus Die Like He Did? Um, and uh, if you've got, I think there's some piles of Bibles somewhere around, so if you want to make reference to one or two of the things that I'll cover as they crop up in the Bible, then do, do just grab hold of one of those. And uh, I think the page numbers are on the sheets. And, and just to recap... Alpha, a practical introduction to the Christian faith. Because Christians dare to believe that God has made himself known to us, to human beings. He's wanted to do that. And he's done that supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why we started off the course at week one. And, and if you want to catch up with the talks, um, they're on our website, www.stdionis.org.uk. And uh, go to Alpha under the Courses tab, and at the bottom you'll find the talks. And we started week one, who is Jesus? Looking at the person of Jesus. Because Christians believe that in Jesus we see what God is like. God wants us to know what he's like. He wants us to know him. So many people seem to spend their lives trying to guess what God is like. I was supposing on week one you come here, sat, and and, uh, many of you perhaps not had a chance to to meet me or get to know me. And you you could have had a guess uh, as to, um, you know, what I was like. You could could have guessed that, well, you you sort of look like a stockbroker or a I don't know, second-hand car salesman. Uh, You used to play county cricket for Hampshire. uh, You you could have all these guesses. They might be quite close, they might be far off. You'd never know. You you could be a million miles off or actually quite close in your estimation. You you wouldn't know. How would you know what I was like? Only if I chose to tell you. Only if I chose to reveal to you bit by bit little bits about me so that you could be sure of what I was like, and on that basis begin to form a relationship. And Christians believe that that's what God has done. He's longing that we should know him, and so he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we've looked at his life, we've looked at why he came. Last week we looked um, at uh, our need of God to forgive us our, our sin, a, a difficult one conceptually to, to, to grab hold of. Here am I, just a mere man, um, inferring through the talk that, that you and I, we are sinners. How, how have I got the right to, to call you a sinner? Of course, we need to understand, as I hoped I was pointing out last week, that I have no right to judge you on, in terms of a relationship with me. I'm only trying to describe what the Bible declares with regard to our relationship and God. And it's impaired, it's broken, it's, it, it's, there's a separation. And the Bible calls that separation between us, you and me, and God. He calls that, the Bible calls that sin. And that problem, if it goes on unresolved, that separation, if it continues forever, will last forever. Eternal separation, the Bible describes that as hell. The alternative is eternal, forever, intensified union with God. Heaven, uh, it's described pictorially as a feast, as a celebration. Light and love and joy radiating out of that. That's what Christians believe 
is possible for every single person. And so we come to tonight. As we look not just at Jesus' life here on earth, why he came to us, but why he died. And you'll see from the the notes here, the cross, the uh, instrument, kind of scaffold, if you like, on which Jesus died, was put to death. The cross and all all that is inferred by that, Jesus' death on the cross, is is absolutely at the epicentre of the Christian faith. And I wonder, have you ever wondered why that is? Let me buy a paper. And uh, maybe there's the obituary section and uh, someone has died, someone well-known or accomplished much in their life. And as you read the obituary, most, if not all of it, is about their life. There might be a sentence or two referring to their death, the circumstances of their death. Often there isn't. It's to do with a celebration and an acknowledgement of someone's life. Strange, then, isn't it? That when we read the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, of Jesus' life... Hardly anything is written of the first 30 years. There's quite a bit written about the three years, the last three years of his life, his public ministry. But in nearly every case, about half of the entire gospel account is given over to the last week of Jesus' life. And several chapters to the last 24 hours. Why is it that the gospel writers... Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, choose to focus on the end of Jesus' life and particularly his death. There must have been something significant to the early Christians about the fact that Jesus died in the way that he did. Or take some of the early leaders, this uh, quote here, um, or these two quotes under this first heading on the sheet, come from Paul. He wrote to a church in Corinth, where he wrote several letters, that's why this is the first one, 1 Corinthians. It's the first letter that we've got recorded to the, to the church in Corinth. And he said this, I resolved when I was with you to know nothing except Jesus Christ and that great worker of miracles. No. Jesus Christ and the cute little baby he was at Christmas time. No. Jesus Christ and the great healer of men. No. Jesus Christ and the great teachings that have lasted through the centuries. No. I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ, Paul says, and him crucified. He even goes on to the church in Galatia, that second reference, to identify himself with Christ, again, not as the great teacher, the great guy, the great rabbi, but to associate with Christ in his death. What's going on here? What's so special about the death of Jesus. What did it achieve? Why is it that Christians talk of Jesus dying for their sin? It's that that I hope to unpack tonight in the next 20 minutes or so. And you can see from the, the headings, these kind of R headings on the sheets, we've recapped a bit about relationship, God wanting to reveal himself to us, for us to be in relationship with him. We've looked at the problem of our rebellion And tonight I want to look at the rescue plan of God and what that's achieved in terms of restoration. Jesus' death was no accident. It was part of God's great plan to bring us back to himself. 
Live on American TV a few years ago, um, some cameras panned in on a man walking out across a frozen lake. And uh, as viewers saw this live action taking place, the immediate reaction from many of them, as this was beamed across the States, was that this man was walking to certain death, that the ice was frozen, the water was below freezing, and as if he was to fall through the ice, he would, he would drown, uh, I mean, just freeze and drown within moments. And, and to all intents and purposes, it looked like a senseless waste of life, until the cameras panned away, and you saw the bigger picture. And it became clear that the man was walking out across the ice in order to rescue another man who'd fallen in. And suddenly the whole scene was transformed from a senseless waste of human life to an heroic rescue act. And that is the cross of Christ. Not a waste of one man's life, but a wonderful rescue act. A rescue plan affected by God, worked out through Jesus for every single one of us. Just to remind you last week, that verse, and it's on the sheet there uh, under the heading, the problem. Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 3 and verse 23. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all separated from God. We don't acknowledge him as number one in our lives. And I wonder whether you've uh, reflected on that from last week, and maybe you were thinking to yourself, well, you know, if, if, if God's so big and mighty, why can't, he just, why can't he just sort of forget about sin? I mean, if it's such a big problem, why can't he just sort of, you know, sweep it to the corner, pretend it isn't there? We, we looked last week at the end of how we might deal with the, the problem of our sin. Well, why can't God do something about it? The trouble is that God can't because of his character. God is perfect, true and just. And actually Christians believe that because we're made in his image, we we have something of that in us. You'll probably have noticed it at work in your life, as I do in mine, when I'm behind the wheel of a car. I, I, I know just how just and right and true I need to be. It's... When I go to cross Putney Bridge, you know, Putney Bridge, you go over Putney Bridge and there's a right-hand lane as you go from, uh, where are we going? From north to south. There's a right-hand lane, isn't there? And it's often clear. And the reason why it's clear is because actually it then filters into a right turn towards Richmond and so on. But if you want to go on up Putney High Street, often that middle lane and the left-hand lane is quite chocker, isn't it? And, and I'm in a bit of a hurry sometimes. I'm a little bit late. And I can see the clear outside lane and I think, oh, I'll just whiz over there, over the brow of the thing, the other side, and I'm getting now to where I've got to, I'm going to get filtered right, I don't want to go right, so I'll just indicate, and then I'll just, I just, <laughs> couldn't, you couldn't just, you know, I'll just, and you, you nudge in, nudge, go on, you just leave a little bumper, just in the little gap, let me in, go on. I'm late, I need, I'll go on. But there are other times when I've left plenty of time. There's other times when I've got a bit of time to kill. I'm going over Putney Bridge. And I know that the right-hand lane filters right. There's no point going in the right-hand lane. I want to go up 
Putney High Street. So I'm in the middle lane like that, and I'm queuing because there's a lot of cars. It's taking a bit of time, but you know, that's all right, I'm okay. And then you'll never guess what. I'm over the brow of the hill, I've been in that queue for about ten minutes. No! Someone has just creamed down the outside lane and reckons they can just flick their indicator on and just barge in in front of me. Yeah, right. So I, I do the old, I haven't seen you. I haven't seen you. I keep quite close. Work close, I haven't seen you. I'm just fiddling the radio, putting on something. No, I haven't, haven't seen you. Not let you in. That wouldn't be right. That wouldn't be fair. It's in all of us, isn't it? I mean, the laughter is just because out of recognition. Now, that, that, that shouldn't surprise us. Because we're made in God's image. We have this sense of what's right and what's just and what's fair. And from time to time, we see it spilled out uh, in the news and uh, uh, on our newspapers. I, um, uh, this, this headline was on the front page oops, that one, of the Daily Mail when Pol Pot died, the leader of the Khmer Rouge. It's, I, I guess, about eight, ten years ago now. Responsible for millions of uh, people's death under the evil regime of the Khmer Rouge. And the irony was that he died in his sleep. And uh, this is the editor of the Daily Mail, exhibiting in, in quite an intense way that sense of right and wrong. See, see what's in effect being said here. This is on the front page. Not, he's dead. <laughs> it's almost as if death isn't enough. I want justice. It's, it's not fair that he should just die when he sent so many to brutal deaths. Consigned at last to hell. Yeah, there should be some kind of comeuppance. And I want to argue that the editor of the Daily Mail is only exhibiting what Paul is really saying. That all have sinned and there is a price to pay for sin. The wages of sin, Paul puts it to the Romans, is, is death. And that if we echo in part what God is in whole, then we know that justice has to be done. We, we know that in ourselves, don't we? When there's a, a miscarriage of justice, we want justice to be done, to be seen to be done. We want the right things to be done. And so it is with God in terms of his relationship with us, our relationship with him. Let me find get the other one back. Oh, I can't now. Uh, let's get something a bit more wholesome. There we are. That was 9-11. And, uh, you know, when it all came down and uh, they just found those two girders and it became a sort of little place of worship. I'll leave that up. That's a bit more wholesome. Here's the question then. With a God of justice who has to do right, which would mean condemning us in our sin, our broken relationship. And yet, he's a God of love who longs for us to be in relationship with us. Separation because of our sin, and yet he wants union. How can God resolve this apparent tension, this conflict? How can God deal with the rebellion of our sin within the context of his great love? And the answer is in the life and particularly the death and resurrection of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus' death on the cross is the solution 
to this tension, this problem. Jesus' death on the cross is the, is the consummation of God's rescue plan for each of us. Some commentators and, and, and theologians talk of this great act of God in Christ as being God's self-substitution. He himself came and lived amongst us. Uh, in, in, uh, in church on Sunday, we've, we've just begun to look at John's account of Jesus' life. John talks of Jesus as the word. Our, our words are a kind of articulation of ourself. They, 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 they sort of bring out who we are. And Jesus, as God's word, is, if you like, the sort of articulation of who God is. As we look at Jesus, we understand who God is. And John says, God became flesh and lived amongst us. He became one of us. But he substituted himself for us where we should have died because of our sin and taken the penalty of death. Jesus dies in our place. Jesus was God's self-substitution. Let me try and illustrate it like this. Uh, Ernest Gordon, in his book, Miracle on the River Kwai, tells the true story of the prisoners of war working on the Burma Railway during the, the, the Second World War. Uh, they were treated quite harshly. And each day, at the end of the day, there was always an inspection. They were lined up and all the equipment they'd been using was checked and counted. And one day it was discovered that a shovel was missing. So all the troops were lined up and the guards, uh, the Japanese guards, began to get quite irate and tense as they demanded to know who it was who'd stolen this shovel. And uh, all the soldiers stood stock still. No one confessed. And uh, in the end, one of the guards lost his rag and he picked up a rifle, cocked it, and aimed the rifle at the ranks of uh, prisoners in front of him and began to scream, all die, all die. And as he was just about to squeeze the trigger on the first soldier in, in in the line of his sights, a man from the ranks stepped forward. And in the tension of the moment, two or three guards raced towards him and with the butt of their rifles, they sank them deep into his skull until he lay dead in a pool of his own blood. In shock, all the other troops were dismissed and they went back to their barracks. And there was a recount of all the equipment and it was discovered that a mistake had been made and there was no missing shovel. That man had been innocent. And yet he'd given his life in order that everyone else should not die, but go away free. And it's an illustration of what Jesus has done for us. The only perfect man who ever lived, the only man in perfect relationship with God, the only man who had not sinned, became a substitute in our place. He he bore the penalty of our sin, death on the cross, in order that we should not die to sin, but be allowed to go free as we recognise his great gift of his life for us. Humanly speaking, I guess the cross came to our attention through Mel Gibson's film recently, The Passion of the Christ. I don't know if you... 
uh, could bear to go and see that. It, it bore out in graphic detail the physical aspect of the last week, 24 hours, and the last hours of Jesus' life. Crucifixion was a, 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 an extraordinary, gruesome form of execution. So much so that the Roman Empire um, uh, uh, forbade their own Roman citizens to be executed in that way. It was thought to be too inhumane. And eventually it was outlawed in 325 AD. Um, what do you do with soldiers during peacetime? They are, they're trained for war. They're trained to be aggressive. They're trained to be brutal. And they get bored in peacetime. So you give them convicts, prisoners, to, to play with and have sport. One of the sports was to try and whip a prisoner to within inches of his life without actually killing him. And Jesus was flogged and then made to carry the kind of cross beam, big, heavy, wooden beam. If you've done a bit of DIY, shifted a little bit of, you know, two by fours around, it's, it, oh, it's a bit heavier than that, but I mean, stuff. Yeah, it's quite, he had to, uh, weakened as he was, carry this cross, this cross beam outside of the city. He was probably strapped with, with ropes, but uh, thick spikes, six, seven, eight inch spikes were then drilled through his, uh, nailed through his wrists and through his ankles. And then uh, putting the two beams together, the cross beam and the upright, uh, it was then lodged into a predetermined slot in the ground. Um, it's recorded, because there were quite a few executions in this way at that time, and it's recorded that often the victims had a number of their their joints dislocated, shoulders in particular were dislocated um, and actually that was a bit of a mercy because you then couldn't pull yourself up to breathe and so you died quite quickly. Uh, uh, Jesus actually died relatively quickly, about six hours. Um, often it would take days for some uh, victims to die and they often died of dehydration more than anything else or maybe blood loss uh, and, and shock um, aided by the fact that you lost your strength to pull yourself up to open the ribcage to allow you to breathe. That's how Jesus died physically. But I want to say that when I went to go and see the Passion of the Christ, what struck me was the, the brutality, the gruesomeness in a physical context. But what is very difficult to portray in a film is the spiritual, the unseen elements of the torture and agony that's going on. I want to argue that that was every bit as painful to Jesus as the physical aspect of his death was. You see, um, we get an insight into it when we look at his words or expressions on the cross. Two in particular. The first one very telling. As he hung on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Do you know, it's the only time in the Gospel accounts when Jesus refers to God as God and not Father or my Father. And that's illustrative of the separation that he felt, the intimacy, the oneness of that perfect relationship. Why? Well, because on the cross, he is like a piece of blotting paper. He's soaking up the sin, the separation that was ours. 
he bore that in his body and began to experience what it was for the very first time to be cut off and separated from God. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why do you feel so distant, so far away from me? I've never experienced this in the whole of my existence. Is this what it's like? My God, my God. The second cry, a cry of victory. It was his final words from the cross. It is finished. The actual words that is recorded that he shouted out is something like telestatri. And uh, commentators were unsure what that word actually meant. It was quite difficult to describe until some excavations took place and they uncovered some um, financial documents They were debtor's papers where a debt had been paid and stamped over the debt was this same word, telestatri. And it means paid in full. There's no more debt. You don't owe me anything. Telestatri, paid in full. And that's what Jesus cried out as he hung his head and died. It is paid in full. Your debt, my debt, in terms of my relationship with God, paid in full. It is finished. It's done. The price of my sin and your sin paid. One of the most extraordinary things is that in what we call the Old Testament, time before Jesus came, there were several prophets, people who foretold what God was going to do. And one of them was Isaiah. And I think this is referenced on the sheet. Uh, No, it isn't. Let me tell you about it anyway. Uh, Isaiah chapter 53. And in verse 6 of chapter 53, Isaiah says this. He's writing or uh, prophesying about 500 years before Christ came. And he says this. We are all like sheep. We've, We've kind of gone astray. We've turned, each and every one of us, to our own way. But the Lord, that's God in heaven, has laid on him, referring to Jesus, the sin of us all. 500 years before Jesus came, he predicted what the cross was about. Let let me tell you that verse again. It's um, Isaiah 53. What page is it, um, Kathleen? 702. 702 in the the Bibles. Um, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6, I think it is. And as you follow it, as I I, um, sort of speak it out, I want you to imagine, I'm going to sort of illustrate it here. Imagine that these spotlights up here are are God. This perfect light, this perfect God. And imagine this hand here represents you and I, humanity, all humanity. And this book is is a bit like the sin that blocks our relationship. We're cut off from God here. And this hand is Jesus, in perfect relationship, nothing blocking him. Here's the verse again. All we, like sheep, we've gone astray, we've turned everyone to our own way. And here we are, wandered away from God, and and sin, represented by this book, blocking, separating us from God. But the Lord, God, has laid on him, Jesus, the sin of us all. 
My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why? So that you and I could make a fresh start in perfect relationship, perfect union with the God who loves us so much. There's a song which has a chorus that we used to sing when I was in a youth group some time ago. And it goes like this. At the cross of Jesus, pardon is complete. Love and justice mingle. Truth and mercy meet. Though my sins condemn me, Jesus died instead. There is full forgiveness in the blood he shed. Finally, what has the cross achieved? What has the cross achieved? Two things. And here are two themes that run through some of the writings in the New Testament which attempt to explain and understand the cross of Christ for us. The first is a legal term. We have been justified. The cross has achieved justification for us. Jesus' death on the cross has achieved justification for us. And that's a legal term. It refers directly to the law court. When the judge pronounced, whoever it was in the dock, not guilty, you're free. And, and what the judge did was to justify you. Your, your, your plea has been upheld. You're not guilty. You may walk free. That's justification. And we, if you like, have stood in the dock before the judge of all the world. That's God. And because of Jesus, because of what he did on the cross, it's as if God looks at that, sees that the price has been paid. There's no case to answer. And we are justified. We may go free. It's a, a forensic or, or sort of legal status. There's no charge against us. There's no reason now why we cannot begin a new relationship with God because of Jesus. And the second image that's unpacked in the New Testament, if the first is justification, the second is adoption. It's vital that we understand this alongside justification. It's not as if God has pronounced the not guilty verdict and then taken off his wig and he's walked off home and just left us outside the courtroom. Well, now what? I'm, I'm free, but... The New Testament unpacks the fact that we have been adopted, chosen by God to be part of his new family, of all those people who are in a new relationship with him. I, uh, in my line of work, I often come across um, cases of, a, if you like, a, an accidental conception. People discover that they have a, uh, a baby on the way. Wonderful news, but it was a little bit of a surprise. <laughs> how did that happen? Um, I, I don't go into explaining how, but I just, you know, there we are. But you know what? I've never, ever, ever heard of an accidental adoption. You've got to go some to adopt a young person this day and age. 
And God has adopted us. No accident. He's paid the price. He's cleared the ground. He's taken the initiative in Jesus. He's done everything possible in order that we might come home to him. To be in a new relationship with him. Not as a slave in the household, but as a son or a daughter belonging there. Again, because of what Jesus has done. The relationship fully restored. I often find myself in conversation with people about the cross of Christ and about Christianity. And uh, when it comes to why Jesus died, people uh, often say, well, um, Tim, it's, uh, it's very good of you to explain that. And I, I kind of see what you're saying. But to be honest, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy as I am. I'm, I'm okay as I am. Do you know, if our greatest need had been happiness... I reckon God would have sent an entertainer. If our greatest need had been information, he'd have sent an educator. Or if it had been money, he'd have sent an economist or a banker. If our greatest need had been technology, he'd have sent a scientist. Our greatest need as human beings is forgiveness for the sin that separates us from God. So God sent his rescuer, a saviour, Jesus, to die in our place. To bear the penalty of our sin so that we could be forgiven and begin a new life with him. Here's where I want to finish. And it's with the offer of a £10 note. And I'd like to give this £10 note to the first person who will come up and take it from my hand. I may not have said that clearly enough, so (laughs) I'll say that again. I'd like to give this £10 note to the first person who come and take it out of my hand. Fantastic. The drinks are on Willie. And did you hear someone say, what's the catch? And that's what we think about offers, isn't it? And you may be thinking that right now. What's the catch? There's a catch. It can't be that true. It can't be that easy. It can't be that simple. Actually, I mixed my words there. It, it isn't easy. It's simple. But it isn't easy. That's why it took so long for you to come out of your seat. You'll have been thinking, what will others think? Oh, look at him. He's a poor vicar. Um, <laughs> how many £10 notes does he have flying with? Whip a ten-pound note out of his hand. Oh, yeah. What would others think? The shame of it. Oh. And maybe you're thinking, I, I, I can't go into work tomorrow. I, I can't. Do you know? Last night I went to this thing and I talking with some people. And do you know? I think I'm beginning to explore seriously the possibility of beginning a relationship with God. What will others think? I, I mean, that's simple, but it isn't easy. And so we may be stay rooted to our seats for a bit unless we have the courage of our convictions like Willie. Hey, that sounds like an offer. What's the worst thing that can happen? I'll give it a go. He's ten pounds the richer. Guys, as we finish tonight, I I want just to allow a little bit of silence. We're going to have some coffee and then 
um, discussion in our small groups. And I'm sure there's all sorts of things you want to bombard your leaders with. That's why they're here. God bless them. Uh, you, you ply them with questions. Ask them how they came into this relationship. How did you get into this Christian thing? Begin a relationship with God. But just before we do that, I'd love just to allow a moment or two of quiet. I realise we've talked about big things tonight. And, and just in the silence, for it to, to sink a little bit. And then I'd love to do just one more thing. I'm going to pray a prayer, if that's okay. So just a moment of quiet. And then I'm going to pray a prayer, and then we'll have some coffee. This prayer is written in the back of the red booklets and they're complimentary to the course. I'd love you to have one if you haven't already. I'm just going to read it out. And it's a prayer that you can pray to God in the quietness of your own heart if you would like to take this offer of forgiveness and new life. A little bit like Willie just stood up there and took the £10 note. It's the same kind of thing. Only rather than sort of standing up, and it's, it's just praying this in your heart. I'm, I'm going to basically pray... And and say something along the lines of, I'm sorry for the break in the relationship. And God, I see what you've done in Jesus. It's an offer of a new start for me, and my sins forgiven. And I'd like to take that offer and begin a new life. Now, please, you may want to ask lots more questions. You may not be ready to pray that prayer for yourself, but I want to pray it just in case there's one person here and you know that you want to pray that now. It may be that you've prayed something similar in the past and you've been, I don't know, not sure, uncertain. And tonight, you kind of know. Um, I don't know how you know, you just know that you know. That you want to pray this prayer tonight. So if that's you, just in the quietness of your heart, I'm going to pray it out loud and leave little pauses. And if you want to kind of echo it, and then we'll say amen at the end. The prayer goes like this. Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong in my life. I'm sorry that they show that I was out of relationship with you. Please forgive me. I want to turn from everything which I know is wrong. I want to start again with you. Thank you that you died on the cross for me so that I could be forgiven and set free. Thank you for your offer of forgiveness and for the gift of your life-giving spirit. Please come into my life now by your Holy Spirit. And be with me forever. Because of Jesus. Amen. Let me just say a short prayer. Father, if anyone has prayed that prayer and received the offer, be with them now, we pray. Help them with their questions. Be in all our conversation and discussion now. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. Uh, Tea and coffee and refreshment and we'll finish half nine or shortly thereafter.